Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brendan McGuire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O glorious Virgin Mother of God, blessed among all nations, worthy of praise and the greatest of praise, intercede for us with thy beloved Son. O honored Lady, Mother of the King of Angels and Archangels, assist and deliver us from every difficulty and danger. O Blossom of the Patriarchs, the Virgins and the Angels, Hope of Glory, Beauty of Virgins, Admiration of the Angels and Archangels, remember us and forsake us not, we beseech thee, at the terrible hour of our death. O Star of the Sea, Gate of Heaven, Temple of God, Palace of Jesus Christ, Harbor of Safety, Flower of All Nations, Pearl of All Sweetness, Hope of the Faithful, O Queen who shelters the guilty, who surpasses in radiance the Virgins and the Angels, Thy presence gives joy to all the hosts of heaven. Therefore, Mother of Mercy, we place in the protection of thy holy hands, our going out, our coming in, our sleeping, our waking, the sight of our eyes, the touch of our hands, the speech from our lips, the hearing of our ears, so that in everything we may be pleasing to thine own beloved Son. Amen. 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 Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, well, thank you all for being here uh, on this, this tough night. The snow was starting to swirl uh, an hour west of here when I was leaving Front Royal uh, around 5.30 or so. And, uh, but according to Monica, we had, at least as of five or ten minutes ago, we had 72 people watching online. Uh, so if you look around and you see about 40 people, we actually have a crowd of over 110 right now, including online viewers. Uh, so welcome to everyone who's watching online, and uh, welcome, of course, to everyone here. Uh, and I'd like to thank Monica for the shout out to Christendom College. Uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure for us to sort of work hand in glove with the Institute of Catholic Culture uh, to try to bring you the best in Catholic education. But I'm not sure I'm bringing you the best in Catholic education tonight. I'm afraid I may come off as what Donald Trump would call a low energy person um, <laughs> because I, uh, <laughs> I was teaching all day. So I, I lectured for five hours today and then drove out. So I, if I come across as being a low energy person, um, hopefully it's not as low energy as Jeb Bush, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, try, to, I'll try to do better than that. Um, but um, anyway, um, so hope everyone out here is, is doing well. Uh, our subject tonight is the persecution of Christians in the reign of Nero. And I, I would say it's important for us to expand our focus and look at the persecution of Christians more generally in the Roman Empire, in antiquity, and in late antiquity. Because this is a very complex subject. It's an often misunderstood subject. Uh, and yet it's a subject that, in a sense, is, is dear to the heart of every Christian. The fact that the, the foundations of our church, right, uh, the foundations of our church are rooted so deeply in the blood of the martyrs, right, that for the early church fathers it was taken for granted that the growth of the church uh, was in part due to the, the grace with which the church was watered in her earliest years. The, the, the tree that sprang from the mustard seed was watered with the blood of the martyrs and the memory of the martyrs and the devotion to the martyrs is something that shaped the early church. It shaped it in profound ways. Uh, aspects of our worship that are still with us today, uh, particularly the cult of the saints, and the veneration of relics 
are things that come to us from the earliest days of Christianity, and they come to us from the era of persecution. So, for the sake of context, let's talk about the empire in which the church began to spread. Because if you think about it, the relationship between the early Christian church and the Roman Empire, it was in many ways a kind of a love-hate relationship on our side, right? We, the Christians, right? The, our, our earliest intellectual luminaries in Christianity they do have this kind of love-hate relationship with Roman and Greek culture. All the early church fathers were the beneficiaries of classical education. They were the beneficiaries of an education uh, in Greek and Roman letters, and Greek and Roman rhetoric, Greek and Roman philosophy. Uh, the spread of the gospel was accomplished under the aegis and, in some sense, under the auspices, as it were, uh, of the Roman Empire. If it were not for the Roman project, the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church would have been impossible. And that context, I think, has to be placed right out there directly for us to understand what we're talking about. That the Roman Empire, although through the edicts of Roman emperors like Nero, or in the 3rd in the century the Emperor Decius, or later in the 3rd century the Emperor Diocletian, uh, through the edicts of these emperors the growth and work of the church was opposed right, by the highest echelons of, of power in the Roman world. Nevertheless, in a very, very real sense, uh, the, the historian Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea, was quite, he was quite right to see the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church as in part resting on the historical foundations of the growth of Roman power, right? As Roman statecraft brought to the Mediterranean world order and peace, and it created within the Mediterranean world uh, an environment in which Greek culture could serve as a, a tremendous unifying thing, right? Greek culture became the common idiom of all educated men in the entire Roman world, uh, and that means literature, philosophy, rhetorical techniques, but in a much deeper sense, worldview, right? Our understanding of human nature and what man is, our understanding of citizenship and law, our understanding of the interrelation of all human beings, uh, to some extent, these are all a, a legacy that pagans and Christians inherit alike uh, from the insights of the Greeks and from the way, in we, uh, the way in which Greek philosophy and culture become the common idiom of the Mediterranean world uh, under the beneficent auspices of Rome. All right? Rome brings peace to the Mediterranean world, Rome brings common culture, transportation, etc. to the Roman world, and as a result, um, within a generation after the death of, of our Lord, His resurrection and ascension, within a generation after his commission to the apostles to go and teach all nations, there were Christian communities in virtually every city in the Roman world. But of course, this provokes attention, doesn't it? It provokes attention because Christians were different. Christians exempted themselves from Roman state religion, from the customs of their ancestors. Christians worshipped on Sundays, which was a work day in the ancient world. So in order to worship on Sundays, they had to get up early to worship before sunrise, right? And as their neighbors hear these vague rumors of Christians getting up early on a workday to go out into a field or, or a, a place in the wilderness and eat body and blood, it becomes a little bit weird to people, right? To eat someone's body and drink someone's blood. Other practices of the Christians were strange, right? The brotherhood and sisterhood of Christians was strange. Rumors flew in the first century about Christians being disturbers of the peace, practitioners of cannibalism, incest, and ritual infanticide, right? Dispelling these strange rumors is one of the tasks of the earliest Christian apologists, right? But the prevalence of these rumors, it renders the Christians to some extent an embattled community in the earliest years of the church. We're talking within the first 
two to three generations, right, after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So, that being the case, right, we come face to face with the character of Nero. Nero has the distinction of being the first Roman emperor to issue imperial edicts against the Christians. Prior to Nero's time and prior to his great persecution of 64 AD, the persecution of Christians had always been a sporadic, local, sort of mob-driven phenomenon, right? And that changes in Nero's time, which I think it leads us to, to want to come to understand something about Nero and, and who he was. So, let's back up and provide a little bit of political and social context so that we can understand Nero and understand the, the context in which Nero is operating. First of all, the transition from republic to empire, which is something that Eusebius and later Christian historians, from the perspective of hindsight, it's something that they see as a good thing, right? They see it as something that favored the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. But that transition from republic to empire, uh, it was a messy thing, right? It was a truly messy thing, and it was rooted in the way in which uh, the Roman state had grown on a kind of a piecemeal and, and sporadic basis during the course of the middle and late Republican eras, right? So if you look at it in terms of chronology, you can, it, it's safe to say in the 200 years before Christ, the Roman state grew by leaps and bounds to administer vast overseas territories. And yet, it had a Republican constitution which wasn't in the least bit suited for the administration of vast overseas territories, right? Roman soldiers were landholders, citizen soldiers, uh, theoretically, who, who could be impoverished by long service in the provinces, impoverished and disenfranchised, right? Which creates immense social problems and immense social pressure for change. The consul Marius, about around 100 years before Christ, he brought about immense change by opening up service in the army to landless men, so that men who could never have met the property qualification, homeless men, landless men, the swelling ranks of the urban poor, uh, which in and of itself was in part a side effect of Rome's military success, as her landed soldiers found themselves more and more disenfranchised and impoverished, right? Uh, that opening up of, to service in the army for landless men, right, and men without property, it provokes massive, massive change in the relationship between the army and the state, right? It allowed ambitious men, Sulla, Pompey, Crassus, Julius Caesar, all of the ambitious men of the first century before Christ to use the army as a political tool, right? Because the men that they were working with had every incentive to follow an ambitious leader wherever he led based on the promise of future reward, right? It radically changed uh, the inherent relationship between the army and the state, right? In a way that led directly to the establishment of the Principate, uh, which is the first phase of, of the empire under Augustus in 27 BC, when the Senate conferred on Augustus imperial power. So, Nero exists in this very early phase in Roman imperial history. He was emperor from 54 to 68. Uh, so this is a very, very early phase. He's the last emperor of the first dynasty, the first Roman imperial dynasty that we call the Julio-Claudian dynasty. The first emperor was, of course, Augustus, uh, and then you had Tiberius and Claudius, and then Nero, right? Now, it's fascinating. When you look at the totality of Nero's 14-year reign, he was skilled at many things. He focused much of his attention on diplomacy, on trade, on enhancing the cultural life of the empire, 
on participating in the culture. He liked to play music, as you know. You know. Uh, he also was a wannabe athlete. He put himself in the Olympics, and he came in last, but he gave himself the, the prize. <laughs> right? uh, you know, he, Nero really loved that sort of thing, right? Uh, he built theaters. He built gymnasia. He promoted Hellenistic and Greek culture in the West, right? Uh, so in a sense, we can look at Nero and see him as more than just the villain that he's often portrayed as. He's, he's more than that. Nero's a complex figure. Nero's a man, uh, he was a man of raging appetites, all right? And yet he was also a Renaissance man, all right? He was a man who uh, truly enjoyed the best of Greco-Roman culture. Uh, but of course, he was also a man of depraved sexual habits, uh, a man of implacable wrath. He was known for his many executions, including the execution of one of his stepbrothers and his own mother, right? as well as, of course, the first Roman imperial persecution of Christianity in 64. So his background is kind of fascinating. You know, Nero, uh, he, he came from this elite Roman stock in that he was uh, a nephew on his mother's side of Caligula, right? The emperor Caligula was, um, was his mother's brother. So he's connected to the Julio-Claudian dynasty as the, the sort of maternal nephew of Caligula. No one expected Nero to rise to the imperial throne. Because for that brief period when Caligula was, was the emperor, uh, you know, Cal Caligula took the throne at the age of 24. He had plenty of time, theoretically, to produce his own heir. But, of course, Caligula was a maniac and he had a very short reign. Uh, and then the throne passed to Claudius. Claudius married Nero's mother, of course, um, and then adopted Nero as his son, thus disinheriting his own son which is a very, very interesting move. Uh, Nero was officially proclaimed an adult, in a Roman sense, uh, in the year 51, at the age of 14. He became a proconsul. He entered and addressed the Senate, made joint public appearances uh, with Claudius. Uh, his face was placed on coins. Now, it's interesting, looking at, at this early period of, of Nero's sort of adolescence, right, what we see is that the principate, right, the, the, the institution of the Roman imperial office is very much in its infancy in this period. The relationship between the imperial office and the Senate is still being, as it were, uh, negotiated, right? The senatorial class, the elites, the aristocracy, the oligarchs who had been disenfranchised by the proclamation of Augustus as emperor, they had never gone away. That was the class, of course, that was the class that despised the emperor's the most. The very existence of emperors ran contrary to all the ambitions, privileges, prerogatives, and traditions of the senatorial elite, right, of that aristocracy of ancient families that still retained a memory of a time when they used to run the show, when they used to govern the empire. Right? So the Senate is always there in the background in Nero's time. The Senate hasn't quite given up. All right. Nevertheless, it was pretty clear at this point, all real power was vested in the emperors, and the power came to them through the army. And this, of course, was a, a, a brutal truth which they disguised using a, a constitutional fiction of the emperor as protector of the republic or guardian of the senate or some such nonsense. Uh, nothing, of course, was truly the case in fact. Nothing of that sort. Now, um, it's fascinating, right? <clears throat> uh, Nero was almost undoubtedly uh, the instigator of his stepfather's death. Uh, it's fascinating. Suetonius says, even if he were not the instigator of the emperor's death, he was at least privy to it, as he openly admitted, for he afterwards used to praise mushrooms, 
the vehicle in which the poison was administered to Claudius, as the food of the gods. All right. At any rate, uh, Suetonius says, after Claudius' death, he vented on him every kind of insult and act and word, charging him now with folly and now with cruelty, for it was a favorite joke of his to say that Claudius had ceased to play the fool among mortals, and he disregarded many of his decrees and acts as the work of a madman and a dotard. Right. So Nero becomes emperor in 54 at the age of 17. He was at that point the youngest emperor uh, in Roman history. Of course, the, the imperial office is a very new office, and uh, it's not at all clear to contemporary observers what, what does this mean to have a 17-year-old emperor, a 17-year-old emperor with raging appetites uh, who doesn't seem to take direction very well. The earliest part of Nero's rule is interesting because he did have strong advisors who tried to control him. Uh, he had, of course, Seneca, he had another advisor named Burus, and he had his mother, uh, his mother Agrippina, who was still around. And uh, she was constantly scheming. It was through her scheming that Nero had risen to the throne in the first place. Uh, but of course, very early in his reign, uh, the mother tried to play the mother. She tried to get really above herself. You never, you never really look at your teenage sons as adults, do you? Um, which is whatever. It, usually it's neither here nor there, except when your teenage son has the power to execute you. Uh, it can get a little awkward. Um, so things, <laughs> things got a little awkward between Nero and his mother in the early years of his reign as she tried to kind of horn in on his reign, uh, interfere with what he was doing and what he was up to. She even tried to interfere with his negotiations with foreign powers and things like that. There's all kinds of stories about this uh, which are, are fascinating as Nero and his other advisors uh, were scandalized and, and embarrassed by the, the mother constantly stumbling into official meetings with foreign diplomats and things like that. It was, it was really, really awkward. Uh, so Nero tried to sever in the mid-50s AD, he tried to sever uh, his relationship to his mother uh, in some pretty obvious ways, to send his mother uh, the message. And then he also took the precaution of having his stepbrother, a potential uh, alternative to, for the imperial throne, he had a stepbrother assassinated in 55. Uh, now it's apparently the case that Nero's mother had actually begun to favor his stepbrother for the throne in the wake of herself being sort of exiled from her influence at court. But nevertheless, over time, Nero himself grows into the imperial role. He becomes progressively more powerful. He frees himself from his advisors. He eliminates rivals to the throne. Over the course of the mid-50s, he had other potential rivals for the throne assassinated. And then finally, he took his, his top advisors, Seneca and Burus, and he tries to have them uh, executed. But Seneca was a much better lawyer than Nero, and uh, he got himself acquitted, miraculously. Um, Regarding Nero's romantic involvements and sexual behavior, I don't want to say much. If you're curious about that, uh, you can look it up. That's what the internet is for. Uh, I, I don't want to say much. That's not what the internet is for. Uh, but I, I don't want to say much about it. Um, but what I would say is from a source critical point of view, the stories of Nero's depravity in that regard are the kinds of things that modern historians tend to be most skeptical of. Uh, because most of those allegations about Nero's behavior, uh, they come from people who were sort of his obvious enemies, right? If you think about it, the historians of the era, uh, guys like Suetonius and Tacitus and Dio Cassius, these guys all came from the very senatorial elite that had been disenfranchised by the rise of the emperors and the conversion of the republic into an empire. And so for these guys to be leveling these kinds of stock accusations of depravity, you know, supposedly Nero, well, I don't even want to get into it, but uh, 
let's take these sorts of accusations with a certain critical eye. We, we can cast a source critical eye on some of these things. Uh, they paint a picture of a man who, who truly was depraved in many ways. He tried to kill his mother by having her shipwrecked. Uh, and then the shipwreck failed, or she's, she's called, her, called him up on the phone, hey, I survived the shipwreck, right? And uh, so then, <laughs> eventually, uh, he just had her executed and had it kind of framed up as a suicide uh, around 62 or so. So uh, it's fascinating. By 62, Nero had totally consolidated power uh, over the empire, uh, and he was free to conduct business as he saw fit. He took an, a very, very active role as administrator from this point on. Uh, he took an active role in legal reform. He took an active role in taxation reform. Uh, he took an active role in diplomacy. Right? His generals won great victories over foreign foes, including the Parthians and including rebels in various parts of the empire, like in Britain. But then finally in the year 64, Rome burned. In 64, a conflagration took hold in the center part of, of the city. Incredible amounts of property were destroyed. Houses, buildings, vast wealth was lost in this fire. Many people lost their lives. It was a terrible, terrible travesty. Now the fire in Rome in AD 64, it's one of those things that uh, Tacitus, the historian, says that Nero started it. Tacitus says that Nero started the fire because he wanted to build a vast luxury palace a kind of Trump Tower, if you will, there in the center of Rome. He wanted to build something called the Domus Aurea. It sounds like a Trump Tower, right? Uh, a grand and glorious thing. Sorry, I'm not dissing Trump. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's just low-hanging fruit, right? <laughs> so, he wanted to build the Domus Aurea, right? The, the golden house in the center of the city of Rome, an unprecedented palatial complex, uh, which was actually something that was very un-Roman. This was the kind of thing that the senatorial elites tended to despise in Roman emperors. The fact that Roman emperors, uh, by adopting the, the luxurious manners and customs of Oriental despots and Greeks, they seemed to have effeminized and corrupted themselves in the eyes of, of Roman senatorial elites. But Tacitus says this is what Nero was up to. He wanted to build this Domus Aurea, so he started the fire because it was the most efficient way to, to kind of clear land in the center of the city. Um, there's a lot of other evidence, though, that the fire was accidental. Uh, Rome had many accidental fires in the first century AD. Um, there was no effective way to fight fires in ancient cities. Uh, there was no zoning, right? Buildings tended to be constructed in a haphazard way right on top of each other. It was like Houston on steroids. And um, so you, really, you don't have any kind of zoning, really, in the ancient world. Uh, you, you had slums, like, right on top of the dwellings of the rich and, you know, right next to commercial districts and things. Uh, so when fires start in the ancient world, they tend to get out of control. Uh, the same is true in, in medieval Constantinople, interestingly enough. Medieval Constantinople was burned by several fires over the course of the Middle Ages. And so you see it's the same kind of thing, right, where the, the fire, sometimes they're started because somebody wants to arsonize a limited little target here, and then it gets out of control. Sometimes it's accidental, right? And it, we can't really say anything in particular beyond that about this fire, because no other ancient historian even mentions it. You know, it's weird. Josephus doesn't mention it. Uh, it's, it's hard to even find another ancient historian who was living at the time uh, who considers this fire to have been important enough to remark on. But it's from Tacitus that we get the story. All right, from Tacitus we get the story that it was Nero who started the fire and then Nero needed a scapegoat. All right? The cost to rebuild Rome was absolutely immense. 
It required funds that the state treasury lacked. Nero had to devalue the Roman currency for the first time in the empire's history to rebuild the city. He ended up building his Domus Aurea there, uh, so either it was opportunistic or it was planned. But the suffering imposed on the people of the city was absolutely immense. All right. And so Tacitus says that Christianity, like every other disgusting superstition, finds a home in the city of Rome, and Nero, to deflect blame, began to persecute the Christians. He issued imperial edicts demanding that all Christians be executed. All right. Now, the enforcement of these edicts, apparently, which are, uh, I mean, most Roman legislation from this period is not extant, right? We're basing our understanding of it on texts in some sense, either texts from the time, which are very limited, scant, and tendentious, or texts that come from three, four centuries later, which give a more complete but dubious account of the events, right? So what apparently was the case was that Roman governors in this period had immense latitude, immense discretion in terms of imposing the edicts of persecution on the Christians. It was in the city of Rome that Nero's wrath uh, was felt perhaps most bitterly. Uh, according to Tacitus, Nero used to light his garden uh, with Christians that were dipped in oil. He would use them as torches for his garden parties. Right? Now Tacitus has an interesting comment on all of this in that when it comes to the great question, the great historiographical question of what does persecution do to the church? Is the blood of martyrs really the seed of Christians? You know, it's a fascinating question. And in, in regard to this question, Tacitus says, it's kind of weird. People started like sympathizing with the Christians after this because they were subject to so much unfair persecution. Right? Now the legend uh, that Nero played an instrument and sang during the fire. It comes from Suetonius and from Cassius Dio. And uh, it seems highly unlikely because from other sources, including Tacitus, Nero wasn't even in Rome at the time of the fire. But it's nevertheless uh, a picture that even if it's not factually true, it's a powerful metaphor that expresses what Roman elites thought about Nero's conduct and Nero's policy in this period. That Nero was there playing an instrument, enjoying himself, making a joke out of the whole thing, singing the, the sack of Ilium as Rome burned, right? looking forward to the days when he could build his great palace, and then blaming it on the Christians, which in Tacitus's mind it does more harm than good because it makes people actually sympathize with these losers. Right? It brings greater publicity to Christianity, and as the Kardashians know, there's no publicity which is bad. Right? <laughs> All publicity is good. Um, it's not exactly true, even for the Kardashians. But um, it's fascinating. Nero's reign, after this time of persecution uh, of Christians around 64, when the persecution was really most intense, uh, Nero's reign really takes a kind of a downward spiral. Whatever factions in the Roman elite uh, who liked Nero or supported Nero or were sympathetic to Nero before 64 AD, they completely lose patience with Nero after 64. Uh, he was seen as frivolous. He was seen as immature. He liked driving a one-horse chariot in chariot races. He liked singing to the lyre. He liked poetry. He even composed songs that became, you know, that, that, that charted as hits in the empire. Other entertainers would perform Nero's songs, which they probably weren't that good, but it was Nero's song, so you had to perform it, right? Um, and now, at first, Nero only performed for private audiences in keeping with his dignity as emperor. But after 64, uh, according to these historians of the period, Nero, he just became obsessed with his popularity among the lower classes. He became obsessed with sponsoring games and entertainments, and with performing himself as a way to pander to the crowds and gain popularity 
with these crowds of, of low-minded people, right? So in 64 AD, we find him singing in Neapolis. We find him singing in, in Neronia uh, the, the, fo the following year, the Neronia Festival, which is named after him. Uh, some, some historians even say that Nero sang songs in the Senate, and the senators were disgusted with it, right? Ancient historians generally see this behavior as shameful. But it was nothing compared to Nero's Olympic performance in 67. Right? 67 AD, you had the Olympic Games. And uh, Nero, like many Romans, was an admirer of Greek culture, although he's kind of a latecomer to that thing. It's a little bit old-fashioned by the first century AD for a Roman elite to be so enamored of Greece. Uh, and yet he goes to the Olympic Games in 67, uh, partly to display Roman dominance over the whole empire, partly to display the genuineness of the translatio imperii, through which sovereignty had passed from the, from the empire of the Hellenistic period to the Romans, right? So he goes to the Olympic Games, but he actually competes. So the first event he competes in is the 10-horse chariot race. And if that sounds dangerous, it is. Nero almost died in the 10-horse chariot race. Uh, unfortunately, he survived. Uh, he was thrown from his chariot. He then performed in the Olympic Games as an actor in Greek plays and as a singer. And in the end, he won all the gold medals. Uh, <laughs> That is to say, the crowns, the laurels of victory, he brought them all back to Rome. And, uh, of course, the ancient historians tell us, well, well, he was bribing the judges. Well, did he really have to bribe the judges? He was the emperor, of course. It's like, it's like the Dowager Countess of Grantham winning the flower contest. It's, it's like just, of course he wins the Olympic Games. <laughs> He's the emperor, right? So it's fascinating, right? Uh, now, it's interesting. Regarding war and peace, Nero was a, a surprisingly able ruler. All right. in part because he was a good judge of talent and he was good at delegating uh, to competent generals. But regarding politics, this is where Nero struggles. Regarding politics, Nero was less competent. Um, in March of 68, uh, a figure named Gaius Julius Vindex, uh, who was a governor of, of part of Gaul, the part of Gaul around Lyon, Lugdunensis, he rebelled against Nero's tax policies. Uh, and so what happens is in the provinces, the, this rebellion catches on and it gets out of control, right? And then what happens is Vindex the rebel is forced to commit suicide. Uh, however, after, after the rebel is suppressed, the legions who suppressed him proclaimed their own commander as emperor. Virginius, the commander, he refused to act against Nero. But the legions who were so discontented, they finally picked another leader, a guy named Galba, right? And they marched on Rome. Now this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that can only happen in the army of the late republic and the principate, right? If you think about the army of the middle republic, or even the army of the early republic, you're talking about an army of landholders, an army with an inherent built-in loyalty to the state, right? The perennial weakness of the armies of the late republic and of the early empire is that although they can defeat any external enemy, right? They can defeat any coalition of Germanic tribes, or Britannic Celtic rebels, they can defeat the Parthians, they can pretty much defeat any, emperor, any emperor's forces outside the Roman Empire. They can defeat the kings of the Numidians, they can defeat the Shahan Shah, the king of kings, the lord of Persia, they can defeat uh, Pontic rebels, they can defeat the kingdom of the Bosporus. Any, any non-Roman thing that comes against them, a Roman army can defeat, right? And yet, these Roman armies were also really, really good at unseating their own emperors, and at holding the government hostage in the capital. And this is effectively what happens in 68 
Nero was forced to flee from Rome. Uh, he was forced to flee. And then what happens is, uh, as he's fleeing, he's kind of toying with the idea of leaving the empire entirely, fleeing to Parthia, or maybe throwing himself on the mercy of his enemy, Galba. But he eventually decides, I'm done. He goes down to the port of Ostia. He has no friends left. And he decides, this is it, I'm doomed. And when emissaries bring him word that the Senate has declared him a public enemy, a public enemy designated for execution, Nero decides he has no options left, and he decides he wants to kill, kill himself like a brave, bold Roman. Uh, but the problem was he didn't have the courage to do that. Uh, so it got really awkward. He was with a, a few of his really loyal retainers, uh, and he was saying, <clears throat> okay, come on, guys, the Senate has declared me a public enemy, so I'm supposed to kill myself now, right? And they're like, yep. It's like, okay. Um, you do it. And the guy's like, nope. All right, here, you kill yourself first to give me the courage. Yeah, nope. <laughs> Eventually, one of his buddies kills him. Uh, and as he's laying there bleeding to death, a horseman came riding at breakneck speed to Nero's estate to tell him, no, no, the, the report was mistaken. You're not a public enemy. The Senate hasn't declared you a public enemy. You don't have to kill yourself. Uh, and he says, too late, too late, and he died. Now, the legacy of Nero is fascinating, right? It brought about the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, and it brought about a, a period of tremendous political chaos in Rome. The, the legacy of Nero was really hotly contested. Um, some of his immediate successors in the first century AD, uh, they liked Nero, uh, particularly the lower classes. The, the more honest historians of the period will admit that the lower classes loved Nero. Uh, and of course, as Tacitus says, it's because they were supported by his famous excesses, right? Um, but the ultimate memory of Nero is actually sealed for us, not by hostile Christian sources, but by the hostile sources of the Roman senatorial elite who actually write the history of the period. You know, it's fascinating. I often object to my students when they say that one of the things about history is that history is written by the victors. Because it's not true. History is sometimes written by the victors, but it's surprisingly often the case that history is written by those lamenting their own defeat. And we can see the senatorial elite in the first century AD lamenting the passing of their power lamenting the passing of their age of dominance, lamenting the rise of these low men to the position of control in the empire. Right? And of course, that seems to be the case here, as, as we see guys like Tacitus and Suetonius, who are the representatives of an order that's passed away, a senatorial order that's been defeated. And it's they who give us our memory of Nero, Nero who fiddled while Rome burned, Nero the maniac. Right? Now, what about the church? What about the church? Um, we might end a little early and take questions because I know the weather is bad this evening. But I can't end uh, without talking about this. <clears throat> Oftentimes, there's a certain lack of nuance in our approach to the issue of Christian persecution. All right? In that we, we imagine, as many early Christian fathers did, uh, that the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. And supernaturally speaking, there might be a way in which this is the case. Even on the natural level, Tacitus says uh, that the Christians drew great sympathy from the Roman public, from the way that they were treated in persecution, from their fidelity to their religion, uh, and from the fact that they seemed to be targeted as a helpless minority to pay for Nero's misdeeds. 
right? So there's a sense in which we see persecution as assisting or helping or maybe even strengthening the church. On the other hand, right, there's no possible way to deny that the church does much better when it's not being persecuted, right? Uh, and we see this very, very clearly in Roman history. I always point out to my students, the best estimates, now these are vague estimates, right? But the best estimates uh, by the best scholars regarding the spread and, and growth of the church uh, in the era of persecution, they say that effectively um, around the time of the death of St. John the Apostle, right? So you'd say, you know, around 100 AD, the Roman Empire had only been Christianized to the extent of maybe 2% of the population at most. That would be an optimistic estimate, largely confined to the cities, more so in the East than the West. But what about a century later? What if you fast forward a century from 100 to 200? Still under 10%, definitely still under 10%, definitely still confined to the cities where only a small minority of Roman and Mediterranean people lived. What about fast-forwarding another hundred years to the year 300? 300 AD, what percentage of the empire is Christian by 300 AD? And we're still maxing out at around 10%. Right. But if you fast-forward one more century to 400 AD, the majority of the empire is Christian. And the crucial difference is having Christian emperors. You don't have Christian civilization until you have Christian emperors. This is why the Christian emperors, Constantine and his sons and Theodosius and those great 4th century figures, for all their flaws and for all their warts, they were welcomed and embraced by the church because they, they ushered in a wholly new order where the church enjoyed not only freedom but prestige. And in that environment, you see, conversions happen. All right? When you look at the age of St. Augustine in the late 4th century, look at the dynamics of St. Augustine's conversion as described in the Confessions, you're looking at an era in which a literate elite was toying with Christianity. It was in the air, along with other things, what Tacitus would call you know, other abominable superstitions like Manichaeism, various forms of Gnosticism, other you know, distorted forms of Eastern religions, various different kinds of bizarre sects, coexisting alongside with traditional Greco-Roman paganism. And yet in that fourth century environment, a figure like Augustine, who is not particularly interested in being baptized, right? whom does he go to hear great rhetoric from? He goes to hear great rhetoric from St. Ambrose, the Archbishop of Milan, who enjoyed enormous social prestige living in Milan, which was the capital of the Western Empire. That was where Valentinian and Gratian and Valentinian II had their capital in the late fourth century. Right? And so you have, a, and Valentinian, Valentinian II, Gratian, all of them Christian emperors, right? So you have a, a radically different scenario in the Roman world when the church enjoys not only the freedom afforded to it by Constantine and the Christian emperors, but the church enjoys the prestige lent to it by imperial endorsement and patronage, right? And it's in that environment, and in that environment alone, that the church truly began to flourish, and not just to flourish, but to make Greco-Roman culture her own. would have the first century, what would the population have been of Roman Empire at the time? That's a really, really good question. Population of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. Um, it's definitely the case that it would have been under 30 million people uh, in the whole empire. 
uh, now. So within that, estimates could vary kind of widely, but I, I would definitely say under 30 million for the whole empire, east and west. And uh, the largest cities wouldn't have exceeded, uh, I mean, the largest cities in the empire in this period would have been places like um, Carthage, Alexandria, Antioch, and uh, they wouldn't have exceeded 150,000 people in size. So. Yes, I have previously heard about the bit with the Christians being used as torches and everything. What's this that I, uh, I recalled some of the movies they're talking about uh, Christians being fed to the lions. Have you heard or seen any actual similar documentation about that as well? Oh yeah, no, that, that's a commonly described thing that the Christian martyrs would be used as entertainment <clears throat> uh, in the in the Colosseum. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating when you get into the sources, and the sources are just not as voluminous as we would expect them to be, uh, the contemporary or near contemporary sources. Uh, but you get you get some crazy stories. So there was one Eastern provincial governor. And uh, I, this might have been in the third century in the persecution of Decius around 250. Um, he, had, uh, he had a bunch of Christians show up and say, hey, we're Christians, we're ready to be martyred. And uh, he goes, are you sure? And they're like, yeah. So he took two of them and he had them killed. And then he said to the rest, you guys are crazy. If you want to go die, find a cliff or something. <laughs> so the, the notion of, of seeking martyrdom, it, it had become part of the kind of the macho culture of the church in antiquity. And the, the church fathers are very, very cautious about this. Uh, the church fathers say it's not something you should do because there's presumption there. Uh, and in point of fact, the crown of martyrdom is a reward that God gives uh, to his, his best servants, right? Uh, and so, yeah, the feeding to the lions is recounted in much of the hagiography and the martyrologies, but there are, there are even non-Christian sources that kind of corroborate that, the, the use of Christians as entertainment effectively in the arena, which involves getting chased around and eaten by wild animals. We have a question coming in from online um, from Nancy in Alexandria, who I guess is uh, afraid of the snow tonight. <laughs> she asks... Were the Roman legions, particularly as they were increasingly disenfranchised, ever sympathetic to the early Christians and their maltreatment, or did they just blindly fulfill Nero's edicts? That's a really good question. Um, from what we can tell, uh, the, the, the vibe that we get from sources like Dio Cassius is that for the ancient Romans, they were weirded out by people abandoning traditional religion. Uh, they were weirded out by people abandoning the cults of the gods of their ancestors, and uh, within the city of Rome, you have this other phenomenon of people being alarmed by uh, the implications of abandoning state religion and, and not participating in state sacrifices and the potential political implications of that. You know, there had been earlier times in Roman history when, uh, when cults of various kinds would be persecuted uh, in times of natural disaster or military setback. Uh, the Romans would kind of turn on those who, who looked like they might not be practicing the state religion or praying to the appropriate gods. Uh, and so to a certain extent, for, for non-Christians, sympathy with Christians seems to have been somewhat detached. Uh, and this is why I would argue it, it's not a major driving force in conversion, uh, sympathy with people being persecuted. Um, you know, it's, it was hard enough to keep Christians from apostatizing. This, this becomes a major pastoral issue for the fourth century church. What do you do with, with those who lapsed? Uh, and the, the answer usually is to treat them pretty harshly, right? So uh, apparently there, I mean, the apostasies were quite numerous, and the Roman government in general followed a policy of uh, favoring apostasy over martyrdom.
All right. And we see this oftentimes when the church is persecuted. There's something diabolical about it in that the persecuting agents will attempt to induce apostasy by all means uh, before they'll surrender and, and martyr the Christian, which is a, a victory for the Christian. Uh, and of course, if you've read Shusaku Endo's Silence in, in, in Japan, this policy was followed in a particularly diabolical way uh, when the church there was, was persecuted. If Christians represented but 10% in, in three, three AD, 300 AD, how did it come about that Christian emperors yeah. came about? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. That's, that's another lecture for another time. But the, the short version of it is that uh, Constantine had been raised through his adolescence and young adulthood as a sort of a diplomatic hostage in the East. Uh, he had been raised as a diplomatic hostage at the imperial court of Diocletian, which was in Nicomedia in Asia Minor. Now, the empire was very different here in late antiquity. Diocletian had completely overhauled the structure of the empire and the way it all functioned. Diocletian's father, uh, Constantius the Elder, was a, uh, a tetrarch, right? So he was one of, the, one of the four original tetrarchs of Diocletian's new imperial system. So you had one emperor who was based in Trier in the Moselle region, uh, that was Constantius. You had uh, Maximian, who was based in Italy. Uh, you had Diocletian himself, based in Nicomedia in Asia Minor. And Galerius uh, was the other one, and Galerius was based in Antioch. Uh, and so what happens is, um, Constantine, growing up in that urban environment in Nicomedia in, in Diocletian's time, there's a place where you have a Christian cathedral, you have a big Christian community. He definitely would have seen them and know, known what they were. There's also the fact that Constantine's mother, quite by chance, uh, was a Christian. Uh, and Constantius, uh, sorry, Constantine's father, Constantius, was therefore sympathetic to Christianity. He was the only one of the tetrarchs who absolutely did not uh, put into action, put into effect any of Diocletian's edicts of persecution. So Constantine, he's raised with this sort of pre-existing sympathy for Christianity. Uh, and then, of course, there's the story which we get from, from Lactantius and Eusebius of his conversion uh, years later in 312 on the way to fight Maxentius. Uh, and then it, but it takes some time. You see, when Constantine first uh, converts, even when he and Licinius defeat the other tetrarchs and take over the whole empire and issue the Edict of Milan, they're not able to take direct action against paganism, right? It, it's a sign that pagans are still quite numerous uh, and even in influential positions. It's not really till you get way late, like in the sixth century that you see Justinian is able to do things like shut down the academy at Athens because by that point, pagans are an, this anachronistic leftover thing. Were the, were the Jews persecuted in the Roman Empire and why not? Or just the Jews were persecuted in the Roman Empire. Um, they were persecuted in the time of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. They were persecuted uh, by Caligula. Uh, and then Nero is the guy who actually started the first uh, war uh, against the, the first Roman-Jewish war in around 64 is when he kind of launched it. Of course, it was completed after Nero's death in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. There's all kinds of Jewish legends about Nero, which are really interesting. Uh, the, the rabbinic legends and the Talmudic legends about Nero are legion. Uh, the story was that Nero came to Jerusalem and he shot an arrow in four directions, north, south, east, west, uh, and then to, you know, to, to try to claim, hey, Jerusalem is mine. And then he saw a little boy walking along the street and he said, hey boy, what, what verse did you just learn uh, in the rabbinical school? Uh, and it was the verse, I can't remember it now, it, it was the verse about, um, I, will, I will give my inheritance into the hand of Edom, uh, but there's this notion of vengeance there, too, from one of the prophets. Now, this is my poor Bible knowledge. I, I forget which verse it was, but 
Effectively, Nero was convinced from this interaction uh, that the god of the Hebrews was going to trick he, Nero, into destroying Jerusalem and was then going to take vengeance on him for it. And so after this, Nero converted to Judaism. Uh, that, that's the rabbinical legend. The, the rabbinical legend was that Nero then converted to Judaism. Now that's not recounted in any Roman sources. It's not recounted in Tacitus or Suetonius or, or whatnot. Um, but it's, it is definitely the case that in, in the Julio-Claudian dynasty you see persecutions against Jews and, and the oppression of the Jews. There's a difference, though, which is that in Roman legal concepts, Judaism was regarded as a kind of a, a venerable and ancient thing. And so you see in the time of Decius in the third century, um, the edicts that require all men and women to sacrifice to the gods, uh, Jews are the one class of people that gets exempted from that because their religion was considered to be both ancient and, and venerable, whereas Christianity wasn't recognized as a religion at all by the Romans. It was called a superstitio, a superstition, which has, it has connotations that we don't associate with the term superstition. It has connotations of something that's really dangerous to the state. We have another question online from Al in Canada. Did Peter and Paul ever cross paths with Nero while they were in Rome? Yes, you see, this is from the fourth century that we get these stories. Um, so the, the fourth century tradition holds uh, that, that Peter and Paul were both martyred by Nero in 64, right? Um, and that they were martyred right near each other there in Rome, that St. Paul was executed and St. Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, so it's one of those things, yeah, from the perspective of, of the traditions of our faith, we would hold absolutely Peter and Paul were, uh, were martyred by Nero. From the perspective of secular historical epistemology, it's harder to prove. Uh, it's harder to prove, but the, the tradition seems to be pretty firmly grounded in the consciousness of the Roman Christian community, for sure. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.